once more with Michael Glover-Smith. Thank you for being here once again. Thanks for having me again, Jake. Yeah, we're here to talk about your third piece of Rendezvous in Chicago. Uh, so I know we finished up last time talking about Mercury Retrograde. You talked about how that was a more challenging experience, uh, a lot for the pressure you put on yourself. So I'm curious about the time in between, because uh, you also mentioned you didn't want to make another film, uh, or you were telling people that you wouldn't want to make another film near the end of uh, Mercury. It was sort. It was during really the post production process, because uh, that went on for so long. That's when I felt like not doing it again. But of course, as soon as uh, Mercury premiered, I was kind of re- <laughs> kind of ready. Um, so yeah, Mercury premiered in late, I think it was September of, uh, 2017 when that premiered. And then, yeah, we, we shot Rendezvous in May of 2018. So that's pretty quick after the premiere. Yeah. And I'm sure I had written the script. Actually, I may have written, I may have started writing it that fall around the time that it premiered. Wow, so yeah, so like no real break in between, uh, at least the thought process you don't make these films. Yeah, no, no break. Yeah. <laughs> and how did this script production come about? How did this become the next film you produced? Well, it was really born of the desire to make something quickly and to have fun. That was sort of the idea and to kind of do it, you know, differently than how we had done mercury and i i remember thinking you know mercury it only played it played for maybe four or five festivals and you know it did have it did play in some commercial theaters i'm talking about the first year and um it just wasn't widely seen and so i was kind of thinking you know if if my next movie is not going to be widely seen why don't i just downshift in terms of ambitions just do something much more modest um that i can have fun doing and uh just do it for less money and put less pressure on myself and so that's kind of you know what happened and you know of course it ended up being more way more successful (laughs) yeah how it always goes yeah that's how it goes yeah uh so how did uh like the specific idea was the anthology yeah yeah I, yeah i was part of um you know my friend claire who stars in uh, rendezvous she made a short movie called runner which is a really good short i think it's 14 minutes long and she made it for i think she made it for like a thousand dollars you know really inexpensive and i remember thinking or it was like 1500 maybe and i thought oh man like that and i i really liked the film um and I thought, oh, God, why don't I just do like three shorts and stitch them together and I could do it for 20 grand. And that's exactly what happened. And that included, you know, everything post-production. You know, this was a SAG film. So we were paying the SAG ultra low budget wages at the time, which also I should point out were considerably lower than they are today. But still, um, and we rented the camera and we rented gear, you know, and every and everybody on the crew got paid. So that's that's kind of remarkable. Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah. And were these so the specific stories within this, were these kind of ideas? 
introduce you at the end of the book. This is an interesting scene, interesting characters, or is it kind of more in the frame of like the Chicago setting biology? Well, I, I remember I had the idea for the last story first, and that was an idea I had come up with a few years earlier. Um, I, I just, I don't even know where it came from, but I think I was making Cool Apocalypse, and I was like, wouldn't it be interesting to make a short where a character in the movie fell in love with the viewer you know i thought that would be just kind of mind-blowing um and i thought you know you could break the fourth wall like have it start off uh as like a normal story but then just have the character look at the camera start talking and then start flirting and you know i just thought that would be exciting to watch and so um, I didn't really act on it because I'm not a short guy. Um, but then around the time Mercury premiered, I had this idea about, you know, a man and a woman in a bar um, and the whole like Brothers Karamazov uh, striptease poker that kind of came to me like a bolt out of the blue. And then once I was like, wow, I could do like an anthology film and um, I said, all I need is a second story that'll kind of connect those. And of course, I thought of um, Eric Romare and his great film, Rendezvous in Paris. Have you seen it, Jake? Yes, I have. Yeah, I love that movie. And it's funny because a lot of people find it very lightweight. They think it's like very a very slight film. But to me, it's a major film. And it, it what I like about it is it captures that new wave feeling that you get when you watch the first new wave films of the late 50s and early 60s and when Romare made Rendezvous in Paris he was 75 you know he made it in 1995 (laughs) and at that point all of the other uh, French new wave directors were either dead (laughs) like Truffaut or they had just you know gone on to make different kinds of films and I love you know a lot of their work i mean i love you know late chabral i love late godard i love some of late rivet but romare is kind of the only one who was like literally doing the same thing in fact he was he kind of moved more in that direction like it was full circle and um that's to me very inspirational you know because he was making this with an extremely minimal crew all location shooting without permits handheld camera that didn't even look that good or look that polished and um the first story in rendezvous in paris is everyone's favorite because it's it's like a perfect short story there's a lot that happens in it you know it's about a con artist and it's you know mistaken identity and all that and it's like um it's very clever and it has a very satisfying ending. And then the next two are much less uh, conventionally satisfying because they're not as, they don't feel like, you know, perfect stories. They're more like just him observing a situation. And I, I like that as well. And that kind of um, fed into how I think I approached Rendezvous in Chicago because it's like in my film, many people have told me that they, they love the first part and they wish that had been released as a standalone short. But to me, um, you know, I, to me, they all work together. I mean, that was kind of the whole point was it was like three different couples and they all 
uh, each segment, you know, had something different to say about, you know, you know, different phases of a relationship. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting that little, uh, it seems that's a common theme, I guess, within your first two films, at least up to this point, of the different stages being able to capture different characters. Uh, is that something that you noticed in other films that you liked, or did that kind of happen naturally that these were the It, it really was kind of a coincidence. I mean, I wasn't even thinking about it, you know. Um, I think... Uh, it's not until I look back and I'm like, oh, wow, they're all kind of the same, you know. <laughs> and then I think when I made Relative, maybe that was a conscious choice to make a film that was still natural to me in terms of being character based and, you know, relationship based and with a big ensemble cast, but also to kind of have different relationship dynamics by making it about a family. Um, and now, you know, the interesting thing is I'm going to shoot a feature in January and uh, not to get like too off topic, but but this is going to be the first one that's not an ensemble cast. So, uh, yeah, the next film I make, it's really about one person. <laughs> so, you know, I mean, uh, I think as a filmmaker, you know, you always want to do things somewhat differently than how you've done them before. Yeah, just, I think it's interesting just talking about Romero too about how he didn't necessarily change but it's not like oh he's doing the same movie again right yeah well we were talking about um hong sang su the other day and you know i think a lot of the best filmmakers it's like everything they do is very similar on the one hand but then they also somehow find a way to just wring an infinite amount of variety out of similar tropes you know like hong is just the best at it it's like every time i see one of his movies i'm like i know what this is going to be like it's going to be about a man and a woman getting drunk (laughs) on soju and he's going to try and sleep with her but then you know but then it's like not like that you know then it's like it's always somehow totally different yeah it's definitely an interesting case of if you only watched like a handful of his films you could be more easily like this guy's making the same movie exactly as you see more, you're yeah. like, wow, there really is so... But, you know, you could say that about anybody. You could say that about Ozu. Uh, you could say it about a lot of the greats. Not to compare myself to them. <laughs> I guess, yeah, in the case of Ozu, literally remaking earlier films also. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And also, of course, working with the same uh, stock company of actors and then casting them in similar roles, you know, which I've also kind of done. Yeah. Yeah, so this is, uh, again, there's Kevin Webby. Yeah. Your first two films, uh, Claire. This Claire. Is the first time she acted, right? She yeah, on. she had. She was the casting director yeah. on Mercury. Okay. And then she auditioned herself for <laughs> this film. Or, uh, <laughs> you know, it's funny. I've done so many Q and A's with her, <laughs> and that's always the joke that yeah. she makes. She was like, "Well, I was the casting director, and uh, I said I know who would be perfect for this part. Me." <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, and you know, the funny thing is, Shane's character has the same name as his character in Mercury, mm. and Kevin, uh, he's Wyatt in both films, and then Kevin's character is Paul, which is the same as his name in Cool Apocalypse, oh, wow. and then also uh, Nina Gannett and Chelsea David from Cool Apocalypse have the same name, Julian Tess, wow, yeah. and and 
uh, Julie is also wearing uh, scrubs, so it's almost as if she came back from the same job. (laughs) But, you know, to be honest with you, like, some people have asked me about that, and I kind of don't. You know, it's... I'm not really big, obviously, into franchise films and, like, the whole concept of a multiverse. Um, So I don't like the idea that, you know, you would need to see a previous film in order to understand this one because I think you can, it's completely self-contained. Yeah, and I think to express it and catch that, because Kevin's character, uh, Paul, is writing the end of (laughs) the the uh, yeah, on the screen. he's writing the end of a novel, and it's literally the end of Mercury in yeah. retrograde. A lot of people ask me about that, like, what is? Does that mean that he's the author of? <laughs> of does that mean Paul, the guy from Cool Apocalypse, is like literally writing <laughs> Mercury in retrograde? And the answer is, don't think about it that hard. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter. Yeah, I mean, is that just something in writing? when you're writing the screenplay it's like he's writing the end of a novel and then yeah. more than once you're there it's like that'd be kind of yeah. fun to exactly I mean, just a fun easter egg yeah yeah that's it yeah that's it. i was very proud of myself for catching the yeah you're good you have a yeah. you have a good eye <laughs> and then uh so yeah obviously uh romare is a big influence on kind of the inception of this film and you even have uh an actress who worked with Oh yeah, that now that was uh, an amazing experience. Ida Politov, who of course is in La Collectionneuse, um, and she had not been in a movie since 1981. So it blows my mind that she basically came out of retirement to do a cameo in my film, and that happened purely by chance. So um, it's it's an interesting story though. So I was ready to go to make this movie. The script was written. There was no prologue scene with Ida's character. And what happened was um, I was contacted by the Logan Center um, at the University of Chicago because they were doing like a series of films. They were doing a Romare series and they were bringing, I think, some of his actresses here to do Q&As. And she was one of them. And I think Sophie Renoir was another. And I think there was a third and um they asked me if i wanted to interview her because they were just trying to get press you know and they and at the time i was writing for uh time out chicago so i said yeah hell yeah i want to interview her because i love that movie um i mean it's you know it's the it's the 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 fourth moral tale uh even though it was the third one chrono you know to be filmed and um and that was the movie that really made his career right that was the one that because like the first two are shorts and they're 16 millimeter black and white. And then he made this gorgeous color film. Nestor Almendros shot it. And, uh, and that was a success. And that's what, you know, his budgets went up for the, the final um, three. Um, and she is so good in that movie. Um, just an incredible screen presence. And she also co-wrote it. A lot of people don't know that. Like she's, um, I assumed naively that the reason why she was credited as a screenwriter is because she improvised her dialogue you know i mean that's that's a logical thing to assume because yeah. later on he did you know work with like marie riviere who started in the green ray and she improvised her dialogue and i think he gave her credit for that so i kind of assume the same thing was true for la collection 
But she told me, she was like, no, they literally wrote the whole script together. And then when they were done, then he asked her uh, if she would play the role. She had no clue she was going to play the character until they were done writing it. And that blew my mind. So, um, and like I had read, you know, a biography of him and had watched all of his movies. So I was fairly knowledgeable about his career. Um, And then anyway, that was one of the anecdotes she told me when I was interviewing her. Um, But before I met her, before we did the interview, I just thought, you know, she's going to be in town like I think it was 10 days before we were scheduled to start shooting Rendezvous. And I thought this movie's already kind of a Romare homage. Why don't I just see if she'd be interested in filming a scene that we could do really fast and maybe just tack it on to the film? And then the idea for the prologue came to me and I just thought it would be really funny if because Claire's character was already a grad student. If some, you know, uh, you know, authority figure, her advisor, you know, kind of chastised her in the opening scene and said, you know, you need to hurry up and finish up your dissertation. Um, and, And I also had her say, you know, don't fuck it up. And she loved saying that. Yeah. I think we only did three takes, and what you're seeing is basically the third take. Wow. Yeah. And yeah, so that must have been. Have you ever? I, I think with relative, there's some magic probably, but any experience similar to that where you just have that connection of like cinema history and how you can. Well, for me, I, I mean, I felt that way about Mercury when I cast Roxanne, yeah. uh, you know, because. Um, I was kind of aware of the fact that she was a French film icon. And also Andrew Sensenig, who plays the dad at the end of um, Mercury. He was in a movie called Upstream Color. By, yeah, he's like a very, he's the third most prominent character in Upstream Color. He's the, um, uh, I can't remember what his character's name is. He's the one who makes the recordings, though, like on the pig farm. So, uh, you know, yeah, Mercury was the first, film where i cast actors based on having seen them in a movie that i loved and then i've done that every time since and you know i've been very lucky that you know i've I've reached out to people who wanted to work with me and hopefully that's a trend that will continue yeah i mean is any of that process part of that process of like getting in contact communicating with those actors and actually directing them on set is there anything about that that you approach differently besides they probably don't have to uh yeah they never they never do uh it's not it's not that different you know i mean one thing i've been asked about a lot is like were you nervous about approaching this person and honestly the answer is no um i get asked that a lot about wendy roby who's in who's in a relative but i've been asked that about you know roxanne and um and no i mean because as a filmmaker it's like i'm not approaching them as a fan i'm approaching them as a potential boss you know like or potential artistic collaborator so it's kind of a question of like you know um it's kind of a question of like uh problem solving like do you want to help me do this and you know how 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 are we gonna do this together and by the time the actual first conversation occurs which is usually like a zoom call um you know i know that they already want to do it right because they've read the script and they've agreed to talk about it yeah. so just some reassurance that, that, yeah, 
Oh yeah, yeah, exactly. The only thing that ever made me nervous was kind of, you know, thinking about the fact that maybe they didn't realize how low the budget was. And like, <laughs> it's like, I know you like the script, but you know, I mean, with Wendy, especially, I was like, T are you, you know, just want to make sure, cause this is like not long after Twin Peaks, the return. I'm like, you know, you're not going to have a trailer. On this yeah. Film. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is like me and my buddies, really. Like, a step above that because we like film school. Right, exactly. I kind of know what we're after, but yeah. uh, I've definitely had actors already who were like, oh, and who's doing hair and makeup? Yeah. Like, like, you. <laughs> you. Like, yeah. We're lucky someone. Do it before you come to yes. set. <laughs> but I guess, yeah, so get back to writing. Were there any other films where you think you're like anthology films you're looking at or uh, a certain. No, I mean, I think, I think Rendezvous and. Paris was the only one. I mean, maybe I don't know. Um, I can't. I haven't thought about it in so long. There may I may have seen something else, some other short that kind of inspired me, but I can't think of any. So yeah. So you write this. Uh, did you ever was Rendezvous in Chicago always the uh, title? Yeah, it was always the title. Okay. Yeah, it was kind of. It was, you know, the, the, the homage was kind of baked into the, <laughs> to the yeah. premise of it. Yeah. So you write it, uh, and then, it, like other projects, is this you go out try to find financing for this film? Yeah. So that one was interesting because I, I kind of, you know, at that point, I didn't want to raise a lot of money. I didn't want to do it Mercury and retrograde style, which was a lot of money for me. Um, I thought... I thought, why don't we crowdfund? Why don't we go back to the crowdfunding model of Cool Apocalypse? Only let's crowdfund more and let's pay everybody and let's, you know, make it a SAG film. So, you know, uh, so 20 grand seemed feasible and it was, you know. Um, I don't think anybody, I, that was, it was fun making it because I, I'm not credited as a producer on it, but I was really the lead producer. And I don't want to take anything away from, from Lane Marie, who is credited as the producer, because she worked very hard on it. But uh, I was kind of the only one who was in charge of the budget and the schedule. You know, like, um, I don't think anybody else understood how the film was being made. You know, they all it was it was literally like making three short films with, you know, three completely different locations, different casts. The crew was the same, of course, but nobody really understood how it was all going to fit together. I, re I really remember just sort of feeling like, trust me, everybody, um, you know, just show up here on this day, show up here on this day and show up here on this day. And we're going to, you know, knock it out. Yeah. Do you find it hard at the point where you get on set and you're directing and also having to keep in mind, are you able to kind of push out the scheduling producer uh, side of your brain a little bit more once you're there? Or, or well, yeah. I mean, because at that point, that's no longer a concern. You know, once you have the sh schedule down and, you know, you have a good first AD who's got, you know, created all the call sheets then it really doesn't matter then you can kind of focus on the more on the creative stuff yeah 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 did anything surprise you about the difference in crowdfunding or anything that you noticed in between doing your first and then well you know 
I know you want this uh, podcast to be about like the nuts and bolts of filmmaking. And so I really have a lot to say about crowdfunding. Yeah. Making Rendezvous was where I learned how to do it. And I'm really sorry that I didn't learn how to do it earlier. But this is a mistake that everybody makes. I know so many filmmakers who uh, they try to crowdfund, but they don't do any research other than whatever crowdfunding campaigns they've been a part of in the past, like whatever they, whatever other people have done that they contributed to. And um, so I used a different platform than I had ever used before, which was Seed and Spark. And it was a total game changer because they were very helpful and they, they taught me how to do it. They coached me through the process. When you use Indiegogo and Kickstarter, you're completely on your own no, and they don't care what you do. And in fact, they want you to lose money, you know, uh, because then they get to keep a higher percentage. And that's something people don't understand. Also, Seed and Spark um, is, uh, I mean, I'm not, you know, getting paid by them or anything. So this shouldn't turn into a commercial, but they're, they're, you know, it's, it's, it's a platform run by filmmakers. So they know what you're doing specifically and their advice is very good and they want you to succeed. So, um, you know, they, you create your little, uh, site within their website for your film and then before it goes live they vet it and they give you feedback and then you make changes before it goes live and all of the feedback they gave me was very uh very good so i wasn't really trying to raise a whole lot of money um i was the, the budget was 20 grand but we had one investor who actually did invest five thousand dollars and by the way, I'm very proud to say he made all of that money back just through theatrical screenings of Rendezvous. So we were only raising 15 and um, and we, you know, we, we made it. I think it was a 30 day uh, campaign and, you know, we, we made it. Um, we exceeded it just barely. And then that ended up being the budget for the film. Wow. And so is that something just throughout those 30 days you're just checking in on? Yeah, I mean, crowdfunding sucks because it, you put so much time and energy into it. Like, I hope to never have to do it again. Um, it was worth it, absolutely, for Rendezvous, especially for that film because it was a small film. But, but uh, yeah, it's almost like making a film. <laughs> you know, I always say that like filmmaking, you 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 fight three battles to to make a movie. The first is raising the money just so that you can be in a position to say that you are going to make a movie. The second battle is the per actual product, physical production of the film. And then the third battle is getting it seen once you're done. And um, what people who aren't involved in film production never realize is that the actual production of the film is the easiest of those three battles to fight. Um, and you know, obviously the most fun yeah. because it's creative and it's satisfying. Like raising money is not fun. Um, uh, where was I going with this? Uh, yeah, three battles of, uh, producing for checking, I guess, uh, crowdfunding, uh, where you're, where you're checking that out throughout the month. 
Yeah. Kind of oh yeah. So so for, for during that thirty days, not only am I asking everybody I've ever met in my life if they can give me a donation, no matter how small, then I'll have to try to inspire all the people who are working on the movie to contact everyone they know. Because um, th- one of the mistakes that people make about crowdfunding is they think that strangers are going to give money to their campaigns. And, of course, that's not going to happen. Like, why should someone who's never heard of you, why would they give, you know, a donation to your micro-budget movie? It's just not going to happen. So um, no one's going to be just stumbling across you know, your page randomly. Uh, unless you have a famous actor in it um, or... It, I think it could work if you were doing a documentary and the subject matter of the documentary was some kind of niche subject that would appeal to maybe a particular type of person, like a particular subculture. I'm really into professional wrestling or video games. Like maybe I'd want to see this documentary. But yeah, your your uh, 69-minute rom-com yeah. is not going to... He's not going to do it. But so, yeah, it's a lot of work and um, and we did it. And, yeah, I hope to never do it again because I spent so much time and energy. Yeah. And so is this uh, how, I guess, similar from the experience of uh, more traditional financing, fundraising for the Mercury uh, in terms of, like, kind of building your crew, like, assembling cast and crew? Is that usually before you do any fundraising and I think in the the first two times I did it, I kind of did it in an ass backwards way, and I think you know the budget wasn't it wasn't completely you know written at the time when I started hiring people for the first two films, so uh, you know so that's not the right way to do it. And but I think with with Rendezvous, that was the first time where. I, man, I think everybody got paid like $125 a day, you know, because that was the SAG rate at the time. And I think I told the crew that that's what they were going to make. I said, nobody deserves to get more than these actors, right? So everybody agreed to that, and that's what they got. Yeah. And, um, you know, some people asked for more, and I said, nope, sorry, that's the only way we can do this for twenty grand. And, you know, either you're on board or you're not. And ultimately, everybody was on board. Um, of course, I did not get uh, I did not get paid, <laughs> but but uh, but yeah, that was kind of n- nowadays. It's like the budget is completely set in stone before I start, you know, approaching people. Although you know you're gonna always make adjustments because certain expenses are gonna always crop up that you didn't really account for, and you know sometimes then you realize, oh well, maybe we can reduce the amount reduce this line item like maybe we don't really need this much um for publicity or whatever so you can kind of take money from one line item and move it over but yeah no i've i've gotten to the point where i'm actually good at it now um i don't do it alone either like i have a producer aaron who um is also very good at it and so between the two of us you know we kind of know how to do it yeah that was what i was uh curious about getting into without as much as you're willing to get into it maybe i could point like your whole 
sales pitch, but are there certain things you try to highlight for potential investors? Well, it, that's always the same. And, you know, um, if any aspiring filmmakers or younger filmmakers out there are looking for advice on how to raise money, I mean, I would say, you know, put together a pitch deck um, and uh, which is not fun <laughs> um, and uh, show your work to the people that you want to invest, you know, uh, show your screenplay and then whatever previous work you've done that you're proud of if it's a short if it's a feature um, and try to make it easy for them to visualize what you're going to do you know that's that's why pitch decks always have uh, comparables right you want to show images from other movies that are in a similar vein to what you're doing that have been successful i mean i think with relative you know um we put together a pitch deck that had images from, you know, Lady Bird, and um, which is not a movie that was really even a big influence on me, but it it was a film that was successful that I think would help people to understand what we were doing. I think it was like Lady Bird and Mike Lee's Another Year, which is a big influence on me, and um, you know Henry Gamble's Birthday Party. So you kind of pick like a range of films that. Um, will help people to visualize what you're doing. I did not put any Ozu or yeah. uh, Fassbender in there. And those are my biggest yeah. influences. It's not the place. <laughs> yeah, it's not the place. You know, it's like, uh, you know, you save that for the, you know, the Q&A. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, no, it is, uh, yeah, financing is really such a mystery. And I know it is because it's yeah. different. Well, every time, you know, with cool, cool Apocalypse was the one time where I did not have a film that I had made to show. Because I had made shorts, but the shorts I made weren't really helpful in terms of like, because um, Cool Apocalypse was kind of a departure even from the shorts I had made. But it was really kind of the first time where I was trying to do the same thing that I'm doing now. But I had the script. But also the budget was so low. It was really just like, hey, you know, can you give me $25? Here's the concept for this film. Um, I can let you read the script if you'd like, you know. And, uh, and, but then when we were raising money from Mercury, the pitch was, here's my film, Cool Apocalypse, and here's the script for Mercury. And also, you should watch Henry Gamble's birthday party because the DP of that film is going to shoot my film. So that all of those things together, I think, made it easy for people to see what we were doing. And then, you know, for Rendezvous, it was like, yeah, watch my watch Mercury, um, and here's the script for Rendezvous. It's going to be a smaller budget film, and it's going to be funnier. So that's how that's how I do it. Yeah, and then is there usually? You consider five thousand dollars a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, there's no back end, but you know, this the kind of standard contract is basically that the investor will get back a hundred and twenty percent of their investment before I see any of the money. So the standard way to do it is to create an LLC. 
and the, in the LLC, the, the filmmaker is the owner, the sole owner, and then the people who invest are the limited partners. So in the case of, uh, of Rendezvous, I had one limited partner, um, which made it very easy. You know, in the case of Relative, I had six uh, limited partners, which makes it a little bit a little bit more complicated in terms of dividing up the income, but you know, I've I've learned how to do it. Yeah, and it, that's something that usually falls to you, or do you look at your city? It, it, that follows that falls to me a hundred percent because I'm you know even though I have a producer who's more in charge of the business end and the organizational end, I'm the sole owner of the company. So every three months, like when Relative played for, I think, 14 months um, theatrically. Mm-hmm. And, you know, there was, there was uh, you know, a little bit of income coming in throughout that entire period. So every three months, I would create what I called a producer's report, which would show exactly how much income came in. And then I would cut a check for each of the six investors and the percentage of the income that they got was, um, you know, it correlated to whatever the percentage they had contributed to the total budget. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, no, that's, that's really interesting. Because I guess as you get more uh, financiers, uh, it does get more complicated and there's a trade-off of more budget. Uh, typically in like, I guess, the case of relative. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah I mean, you, you know, and then usually what will happen, like the case of Relative, we had one investor who came on first and really invested a sizable amount, um, more than half of what the film ended up costing. And then from there, it was, it was we were over the hump. You know, it was kind of easy for me to go to other people and say, look, we're looking for, uh, you know, X amount of money. What can you do? So then it sort of becomes, it's like putting a puzzle together, right? Um, yeah, and you're making a new LLC for every production. Yeah, unfortunately, you have to. And, and this is what's really comical. It's like I have four different LLCs, four different bank accounts, business, business checking accounts, all of which really have no money in them uh, because whatever comes in goes right back to the investors. Um, but you have to do it because if you don't do it, you could get sued. And um, I mean, that's very unlikely to happen in my case uh, because, you know, I'm, a, I'm an honest person. Um, and also the amount of money that's coming in is small. The amount of money that's being invested is relatively small. Um, but, you know, if I were to get sued, then... If I were to try and do it either as an individual or if I created an LLC that would be like a generic, you know, uh, film production company that would do all of my films, if I got sued, they could take money from my personal bank account or they could take money from that hypothetical LLC that, that, that where uh, they could take money from other projects. So um, that's why you create a separate one every time. I think that's one of those things you see like at the end you say there's like the credits there's like there will usually be like the yeah it might be the film title LLC yeah or oftentimes it has some goofy ass name (laughs) (laughs) because it's like it has to be unique you know you can't use somebody else's name and and it really doesn't matter yeah 
Yeah, I, I made a mistake. It's like the last three movies I made, the LLC all began with an R. <laughs> so I like called one Rendezvous Films and Relative Films and Retrograde Films. So now I sometimes get them confused. I'm like, wait, which which account is this? <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's so funny. Um, so I guess, yeah, so once you, what's the time period between securing the crowdfunding and getting into production? Are you waiting until, I would assume it's guaranteed, um, yeah, I mean, with with Rendezvous, I can't remember when we started the campaign, but we knew we knew what the dates were going to be when we wanted to shoot it because that was based on my schedule as a teacher. Like, I always shoot my features <clears throat> between uh, semesters, so um, most of them I've done like between spring and summer. Mercury actually did between summer and fall. Chicago filmmakers always shoot in the summer. And by the way, that's that's one of the reasons why I'm going to shoot in January this time, because, uh, you know, it'll be fun to show another season in a feature, which I haven't done. Um, but so we knew that we were going to shoot Rendezvous in May. We had a three week window where we could do it. So everybody I had hired everybody, I think, pretty much in early 2018, like shortly after the new year and i kind of told everybody okay we're going to do this campaign and we're going to get in you know hopefully we'll get the money and then we'll make the film so if we hadn't raised 20 grand through seed and spark you know of course we would have canceled the shoot but fortunately we did yeah and so what did this production schedule look like did you approach it the bookings as almost more you're making three shorts or was it more similar to the it was it was honestly to me it felt like making three shorts um yeah it really did uh but we did it but we still shot it all in a very short span of time you know it just had a different feeling like every you know because it was a different place with different actors it really did feel like a different a different experience each time um yeah, and you know, we actually shot the bulk of it in five days. That's the crazy thing. The I Day Politoff Day, of course, that just cropped up at the last minute. Um, and then we, you know, we, you know, we shot her in a span of like two hours or something. Um, and then, so that was a half day. And then there's a scene where it's a flashback to this guy's childhood where he's playing poker, strip poker with his um, babysitter. <laughs> <laughs> which i love yeah. and uh that was a half day where we just shot that and nothing else in fact we shot that on everybody else's day off that was like me and the dp and like one production you know manager we just like did that so that was a half day very laid back and then there was another there was a third half day where we shot all of the establishing shots without the cast like that's where we shot the opening credit scene which was like lakeshore drive uh and lake michigan which was mos and it was all mos that that final day um and again that was me the dp and and one assistant and we shot um there's a montage that begins the second story where you're just seeing doorways mm -hmm. as you're hearing acoustic guitar music and we shot all those doorways on that last half day um so that was all mos and there was one insert shot of my cat 
uh, that we got on the last day. So because, you know, there's two guys standing beneath a wind, a second story window and they're talking about a cat. And I said, there's no way in, you know, even though we were right there, that was my that was my condo. I said, there's no way I'm going to fuck around with trying to wrangle one of my cats to do this when we have to shoot with these actors who were paying. I said, we'll come back here. We'll do that on the MOS day. So, so those three half days were very simple, but the bulk of the film was shot in five days. And that was, um, you know, we spent two days on the first story, which was the wine bar. And those were overnight shoots. We shot in the middle of the night, which again is a nightmare. I hope to never do that. And then we shot the, the, the middle story uh, in Cats and Dogs in two days. And then the final story we shot in one marathon 12-hour day. Wow. And all the other days were about 12 hours also? Um, no, I think you know, some of them were as, as few as eight hours. Wow. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. And so was this, uh, well, I'm curious, was the LSD opening, was that kind of, again, just like for fun, you felt like this would be no. time, or was that a reference? Okay, here's the thing. We had a super tight, you know shooting schedule and we had a shot list that was very detailed and man we i think there's like one shot that we got out of all of the dialogue scenes in the film there was one shot that i think that i cut where you know that was written into the shot list where someone said something and then when we were editing it, I thought, oh, we can lose this line of dialogue here. And we kind of cut a moment out. Um, we used everything. But the, the, the Lakeshore Drive scene, I was giving myself room to play around there. What I wanted to do was to shoot Chicago. I said, oh, this is called Rendezvous in Chicago. Let's see the city. So we actually drove downtown. We drove under the brown line, uh, the green line. Do you know that cool like stretch of the green line where it kind of starts in the loop and then it goes west? Um, that's a fun street where you're literally driving under the train. Like we did that, we shot that, and we shot a lot in the loop. And for whatever reason, when my editor and I were trying to cut it together, like none of that footage looked good. It was almost like, I don't know, the, the DP who's excellent, by the way, Alex Halstead, um, it was, he, was, he was shooting handheld out of the passenger side window. And it was almost like he couldn't, it, the camera wasn't very stable for very long on any of those shots. And we couldn't make it work as a montage. Like we couldn't find the rhythm, but the Lakeshore Drive shots worked like gangbusters. And I think it had, I don't know why, um, you know, I think it has to do with the fact that you're seeing the lake and the sky and then there's like green at the bottom, green grass and then blue above it. It just looked really good looked like a you know like a uh, like some kind of a abstract painting almost but also uh it's good to keep things simple you know like you don't need to see a montage of the entire city yeah. 
and you know, then I realized something while we were cutting it together. I thought, oh, the opening scene takes place in Hyde Park, which is on the south side. The first story takes place in Rogers Park. So if you think about it, where would Delaney have to go to get from Hyde Park, University of Chicago, to a wine bar in Rogers Park? She would literally have to take Lakeshore Drive, and she would be going in that direction, which is south to north, right to left, which is the direction we were shooting. So even though I didn't intend it when we were shooting it, it that occurred to me. And then also... In the second story, um, the two guys, they end up at the lake and they're looking at the lake. So it also is kind of foreshadowing. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's uh, I, I was curious about that too, like how, like how you decided to show uh, Chicago, like what locations did you, was that a conscious choice of like, I don't want to show Ferris Bueller. Like, yeah, oh, totally, show, yeah. Like, I mean, you know, it's like I love Chicago so much and there's that's always a question of you know how much of it do we show like what do we need to show I never show the skyline you know except for in the very beginning of Mercury that's the one time there's this great shot where it tilts down from the sky to the iconic skyline and I felt like I could do it there because Chicago's not in the movie other than very briefly in the beginning But it was important because even though it's in Michigan, those characters are from Chicago. And I needed to convey the idea that these are city people. They're city people in the country. That's the whole point. So you need the skyline before you go to the woods. But in a movie that's entirely in the city, you know, because you live here in beautiful Buena Park, that Chicago is a city of neighborhoods. You know, it's like it's very sprawling. The city limits, it's like really, um, it's really large geographically. And, you know, most people who live here never go downtown unless they have to for some reason. Like, it's not uncommon to go months <laughs> without visiting the loop. So, um, so you know, I don't want to show cliched images of Chicago. Um, but then, you know, when you have two guys having a conversation at Lake Michigan, the question does arise, like, when do we see the lake? Uh, do we, you know, because the, the whole story is about them walking to the lake. It's their day off. They're just having a, you know, going on a stroll. And which is very common for people to just go sit on the beach. Right. So um, I thought, oh, you know, do we do we show it when they first sit down? Because they talk about the lake. They, there's a lot of dialogue about how much they love it and how it defines Chicago. And I thought, no, it would be really cool if we're just looking at them as they're looking at the lake and we don't see it at all until the very last shot. And then we do a very dramatic 180-degree pan. And I also thought that would build suspense into it in a way because the viewer would be like, oh, wait, am I even going to see it, you know? And then it's kind of like that's your reward is you get this um, kind of romantic – because it's a romantic episode, I think, and the way that the camera pans, it's kind of a sweeping romantic uh, camera movement. Um, So I – you know, yeah, I always think about how do we want to show the city? And the other locations, then, like the wine bar uh, and the uh, ice apartment at the end, were those like I guess more for the wine bar? Were the, was that like a specific location? Or, like, so here's the dirty secret about the wine bar: 
the exterior is Rogers Park. Um, they're actually going in and out of, I think they're going in and out of a bar that no longer exists, which um, was called the Red Line Tap on Glenwood, yeah. all right? Mm-hmm. Which is also where we filmed the interior for the ending of Mercury and Retrograde. Oh, wow. But when Kevin goes in there, you know, then we cut to Glenview, Illinois. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> now we're in the suburbs. Yeah. And I, that's the magic of cinema, yeah. you know, because the truth is I tried to find a wine bar in the city because that would make our lives easy. But, man, it is hard to find a bar that will let you shoot. Mm-hmm. Um, it's really, really, you know, for free because yeah. I, I, you know, I didn't want to pay a location fee. This is this is very low budget filmmaking. Mm-hmm. Uh, I actually and, and also the way the script was written, you, you know, there's a lot of suspense in that opening scene where you have uh, a woman and a man taking off their clothes so you needed there to be a booth where they could do that where they would not be visible to the people at the bar now believe it or not it's hard to find a bar that has that exact geographical layout a lot of bars you walk in and you see everything so it wouldn't have made sense. Um, so again, I'm obsessed with location and I, I want to find a place that's perfect. I did find one that's perfect in Edgewater. I can say the name because it's closed. It was called Income Tax <laughs> on Broadway. And I went in there and I talked to the manager. And by the way, the thing that's the worst about low budget indie filmmaking is being your own be, uh, the director being the location scout just yeah. walking up to people and saying hi i'm a filmmaker would you ever consider letting someone shoot a scene for a movie here mm-hmm. um but that's what i did and uh the manager i mean i think it was of course the kind of thing where like oh well that person's not here here's their card send them an email so i go home i write the email i say you know your film is her, or your your location is perfect for what I need for this scene. You know, this is a low-budget film. Let me know if there's anything you can do. And, of course, the message I got back was like, oh, you know, we once had Chicago Fire shoot an episode here. How much can you pay us? <laughs> so that kind of – it's like the two things that ruin your ability to find locations in Chicago are, A, too many Columbia College students <laughs> – already shot there and like tore the place apart so it's like every bookstore is like no we had a columbia student in here once and they ruined our store dragging their light stands through the aisles or um you know they've been approached by one of those dick wolf fascist cop shows and then you know they want that money and I, you know, what's funny is I wrote them back and I'm like, uh, I said, this is a really low budget film. I said, I, mean, I could maybe throw $100 your way. Please let me know if there's anything you can do. And then they never wrote me back, Jake. So uh, th- I think that was it. I think I gave up. I was like, all right, let's go to the suburbs. Because if you go to the near suburbs, it's the opposite scenario. People are excited. They're like, what? You want to shoot a movie here? Cool. Here are the keys. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's like they think it's fun. Yeah. You know, they're like, oh, wow. Uh, 
you know they want to be thanked in the closing credits and yeah. they want to see the end result and uh, so so that was the easiest way for us to do uh, to, to, to find a location for that opening scene. But I also want to point out, we did a lot of production design because the place we shot was called Hackney's on Harms. It's a very well-known restaurant yeah. and bar in Glenview. I highly recommend going there. And the only reason I knew about it is because um, I teach at Oakton College and I think two of my students at the time were working there, waiting tables. And so... Um, I had been there, you know, to, to visit them. And uh, and it's really more of a restaurant than a bar. But I thought it has a bar in it. And the area where our the scene takes place, where our characters strip, that's, the, that's kind of the restaurant part of it. But I thought, oh, it's just tables. Like, we'll, you know, we'll, we'll put a wine bottle on every single table and put a candle in each bottle. And that will change the atmosphere, and it did. Yeah, it's amazing how small things like that. I, can be yeah, and I've I've had people say to me after watching that movie, "Where's that wine bar?" You know, and I say, "Well, it's really not a wine bar; it's just yeah. a restaurant and bar." Um, and they, they think it's some cool spot in the city that they can visit, mm -hmm. and I'm like, "Yeah, it's really, yeah. it's in Glenview." <laughs> <laughs> so, is this was this the case where? Because uh, I know you've talked about before how you Yeah. So are you like starting with some places in mind and trying those first when you're writing scenes like this, or is it like I'll figure that out? I mean, usually I have I always have some place in mind, um, even if I know that I'm not going to shoot there. You know, my sense of what a dive bar is like, or what a you know what an apartment is like, or a diner. You know, it's based on having been to those places, and so that's what I start with, and then. Um, it becomes a question of okay, where you know, where where can we get permission to shoot that corresponds to uh, this idea that I had. Okay, and uh, I noticed too was the split diopter shot in the first section. Yeah. Oh, thank yeah. you, thank you. That makes me so happy that you <laughs> say that because we rented that lens for one day and we paid money for it. And uh, what's the question? Well, I guess you know, was that something you saw the location? And you like, oh, yeah. Well, I think my DP and I, you, you know what? We visited the location in advance, and he, you know, uh, went went. It, it's kind of an unusual shot. Also, we're shooting in the you know the one point three seven aspect ratio too, so it's a square image, and. It's like we needed someone in the foreground and someone in the background. And I think he and I looked at each other and he said, you know what I'm thinking? And I said, yeah, split diopter. So it was it was just logical. We were kind of like we visited there and we're kind of like talking through the shot list together. Okay. And I guess, yeah, with that and also the shot at the end of the second story, which I really like to do that with the slow pan. Yeah. Uh, it's along with, I think, the opening of Mercury is so much the more Sequence? Are you worried about uh, it 
coming off as strange to people, or is it just in the moment you know that's the right visual choice for? Um, I don't. I'm never worried. You know, I'm never worried. Uh, I think you always want your style choices to feel intentional. You know, I saw 2001 A Space Odyssey last night in 70 millimeter, and I was blown. There's one very brief section in the smack dab in the middle of that film where Kubrick uses handheld shots. And it's just for like one minute in the middle of this two two and a half hour film. And it's just the best use of handheld camera I've ever seen. Uh, but it is a stylistic rupture, which is kind of what you're talking about, yeah. right? Uh, but it's fully supported by what's happening. You know, it's like it's the, it's the moment where Dave Bowman goes to disconnect Hal uh, when he first returns to the spaceship and he's walking. And it's like several shots in a row where it's very shaky. This is like the pre-steady cam, you know, era, obviously. Um, and everything else in the film is so rock stop, rock solid, steady that it's really noticeable. And yet, it's of course it perfectly underscores the emotion of this of this man's mission. <laughs> uh, but I, you know, it's funny. I've seen that movie like twenty times, and last night was the first time where it really jumped out at me. And I'm sure it was because I was seeing it on the big screen as being. Uh, kind of a weird a weird thing to happen you know stylistically but it also worked um so i mean again i'm not trying to compare myself to stanley kubrick but i'm never worried that something's going to be weird you know if we're going to do this also about relative there's a 360 pan in relative which is weird but also it's you know it's my favorite shot in the film yeah it's like you know you just feel an impulse to to do you know to do something and and you know the meaning of the film is in it's in where you put the camera and it's in the blocking and it's in how you move the camera like you you know if you're going to move the camera it should really be for a reason because you want someone to feel something and even if you can't articulate it entirely you should be chasing some kind of feeling right Unfortunately, I think a lot of filmmakers move the camera for no reason other than they think it uh, is going to like look cool. Um, yeah, that's not something I would ever do. Yeah, no, I think it's something where the art or understanding maybe of directing, at least in the popular understanding sense of it, is kind of got lost a little bit. Yeah, um, I agree. I agree. Like, yeah, I always think about, I think it was Soderbergh someone else but saying like you could tell it was a great direction by when you can turn off the sound and still yeah something. totally i totally agree with that yeah. and you know i've i've also i should also point out i've had dps suggest um camera movements to me and you know of course my first question is always well why do you want to do that and it's like sometimes they'll have a good reason but other times they have no good reason and i'm like no we're not gonna do it <laughs> I mean, especially if it's complicated and we'll yeah, time set up and exactly. laying out tracks and everything like yeah. that. But, so what are, you touched on it a little bit, but some of the things that are going through your head when you're deciding on a shot, even in the shot listing, like are there key elements that you always come back to of like, obviously the spacing, uh, 
you know, here's the funny thing. I love talking about shot lists and nobody enjoys hearing about it, <laughs> especially interviewers, uh, because it's very special. It's a very specialized thing, but also it's not, I don't know, maybe it's too minute or something, but um, the reason why I love talking about it is because I spend so much time doing it. And and a lot of directors don't do it. You know, a lot of directors work without a shot list, which I think is crazy. Um, although I actually hope the film that I want to make in January, I think it's going to be mostly not shot listed. I think there are going to be certain scenes where I do it because it, it'll be it'll be helpful. But then I think for other scenes, we're just going to have a much looser approach. Um, and I'm looking forward to that. I think that'll be exciting. But uh, for all the films I've made, they all had detailed shot lists. And, um, you know, because I'm always worried that if I don't have a very specific plan, that uh, maybe, you know, things will fall apart. And then I'll be like, I wasn't prepared enough. <laughs> and in the world of low-budget filmmaking, when you have a tight schedule, it really helps to stick to a schedule if you look at your shot list and you're like, here are the shots we're getting and here's the amount of time that we're getting them in. And then, you know, sometimes you find yourself ahead of schedule and then you can try things. And then, of course, other times, you know, you, you change your mind on the fly and you're like, okay, I don't want to do that anymore. You know, let's do this instead. Um, but, yeah, the, it's really hard work, you know, creating a shot list because you're, you're thinking – in advance, like, what do I want every single moment in this movie to look like? You know, what should it look like? Um, I've per I've never storyboarded. I think that's, personally, I think that's insanity. Um, but doing a shot list is very similar because you're, you're pre-visualizing it, you know? Yeah. And so with that, it's, uh, I guess, yeah, how long does the shot list thing it takes a long yeah. time oh my god and that that's the thing oftentimes everybody always wants to ask you as a filmmaker how long it took to shoot a movie mm -hmm. nobody ever wants to know how much time you spent preparing yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know because you, you're like well we shot this feature in 10 days and they're like whoa and then they think maybe it's not that much work you know but you're like no you know, the reason why, because, you know, I made a short earlier this year, um, which we shot in a day and a half. Paper Planes is a 17-minute short. And everybody is like, what, you shot that whole movie in 15 hours or whatever? And I'm always like, well, yeah, but, you know, I my co-director and I met in the central location f four separate times. And the first time we met, we met with the uh, director of photography. Well, actually, the first time, we, yeah, we met with the director of photography, and I went through the first draft of the shot list with him and kind of walked around and talked about the shots. The set, And that's a couple hours, you know. And then the second time, and he made suggestions, and he made very good suggestions, so we changed it. The second time, we met there with the two actresses. They rehearsed. Then we did a full blocking rehearsal where they walked around and sat down and did exactly what they were going to do. The DP was also there for that. When you see the actors in the space, then we changed the shot list again. Then the third time was, you know, with 
um, the AD, where we walked him through the whole process so he would understand what it's going to be like. And then there was a fourth time. I think it was with maybe the, I don't know, the, I don't know. I think it was when we did production design. So um, that, you know, the more prepared you are in advance, the less work you're going to have to do when you're on set. You don't really need to think about those things. In fact, what I like is for the AD to tell me what we're doing. I like to not think about it. Like I don't want to look at the I don't want to look at the call sheet and look at all the shots and think about the order. I want someone to tell me, "Oh, we're doing this next. We're doing that next." So that I can just think about, you know, uh, the creative part of it. Yeah, and that there's I see that point is like getting under the performance once you're actually on set and Exactly. Yeah. yeah, it's yeah, I think one of those weird things that like by being more prepared and very detailed and specific in your intentions and shot listing, it kind of allows more freedom. Yeah. Because even if it's just like, all right, we got what I know we need, but yes. someone, I have this idea for, uh, sometimes it might be able to see now that we're all here and it's possible we have extra time. Yeah, exactly. Try something new. Yeah, and then of course that's always the best stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and so you're always shot listing alone first. Yeah, it's always alone. It's, I always say it's very similar to screenwriting because, you know, and it's just as hard. You know, when you're screenwriting, you're dreaming it up and you spend a lot of time alone and, you know, you try different things and, you know, you're just alone writing for hours on end and you let your mind go anywhere and you don't censor yourself. Um, and that's fun. Uh, but it's also kind of lonely in a way. And then um, shot listing is, it's a little similar to that because you're also compiling a very lengthy document i think the shot list for relative was like 30 pages long 30 you know like in a word document or whatever um so it's really long and it's a it's a little similar to screenwriting um but it's also a little different in the sense that it's a little bit more technical so you're, you're looking at the pages of the script, you're looking at the dialogue, and then you're thinking, like, what do I want to see? And sometimes that's very obvious. Uh, sometimes the script will tell you how it needs to be shot. Um, but then other times you're like, oh, this is a dialogue scene between several people, and I could do it any number of ways. And then you, you try and just come up with a solution that feels meaningful. And is this somewhere, something where you feel like your knowledge of film history and film theory really comes into Absolutely, yeah. yeah. Yeah, because what we're talking about now is mise-en-scene, mm -hmm. right? Okay. You know, I mean, I hate shot reverse shot editing. Yeah. I, ne I didn't even do it, really, in my first two films at all. Mm -hmm. and, um, and, you know, that probably impacted the way some people felt about those movies because they look different in fact i know it did like you know mercury some people you know said things like oh you know he didn't have enough money to in order to get more shots <laughs> which is completely untrue because you know i knew what the visual style of that film was going to be before i even knew what the budget was you know um that was always just meant to be a slow burn long take movie um and then, you know, with Rendezvous, the first scene is shot reverse shot. So this was me kind of confronting my mortal enemy. And I thought, but how do I do it in a way that's meaningful? Where it's not just like lazy. So 
I came up with this shot list. I said, well, first we're going to see these two characters sitting at a table. We'll, we'll see a master, a two-shot of them sitting down. And then that's when the conversation begins. And then at a certain critical moment in the conversation, we'll cut to a close-up of him. And then we'll cut to a reverse angle close-up of her. But at first, it'll be clean, meaning you'll only see each of them. You won't see over you won't see over the shoulder you won't see the back of the other person's head it'll just be clean because that'll create more tension right you feel like they're isolated and then as the scene progresses we will move the camera closer to the eye line meaning it goes from being clean to dirty so as the scene develops you do see both people you do see over the shoulder you do see out of focus, you know, back of head uh, in the in the foreground, and that makes it feel intentional, right? You feel like it's building. Yeah. You feel like the characters are feeling more connected to one another. And then I also did another thing that I heard um, that Jean Pierre Melville did, uh, who is of course a hero of mine. He I read that he did when he did shot reverse shot he took a tape measure and he measured from the lens to the tip of the actor's nose so that when he flipped it around and did the reverse angle he could make sure that the that the that both actors were literally the exact same distance from the camera and i thought oh i think that creates a feeling of meticulousness you know so we do literally did that on a rendezvous that's yeah, it's so interesting. I feel like something that gets covered a lot. I've taken so many film courses and everything. It's just like the idea of like when you start out, it's like all right, you got to get your coverage like before anything. You got the wide shot. And the yeah, close-ups. fuck all that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which like in a way like it like some scenes it helps, but then once you kind of dig deeper and you have these references. Like, okay, so here's the thing. So you know how I told you there's the master at the beginning? Oh, so then something happens during the scene. I actually haven't seen that movie in years. But then something happens where the whole drama kind of resets. I think it's when she maybe challenges him or she brings up the game or whatever. It's like maybe after he talks where she first brings up the idea. Then we go back to that master and then the shot pattern repeats itself then we go back to the singles that are clean and then they become dirty again Mm -hmm. so it's like it goes through the same shot pattern twice which um again it it corresponds to like what's happening but you know the the film school way to teach someone how to do that would be like do the whole thing in a master and then you have quote unquote options of how to cut but it was like i knew those two moments where you see them in the in the wide shot the master were going to be the only two moments so those are the only moments where we got that shot and that's unusual like people don't make movies that way and the next day after our first night of shooting claire cooney sent me an email and she said you know my favorite line in the script is blah, blah, blah. I don't remember what line it is. And she's like, and I noticed you didn't get a close-up of me <laughs> when I said that. And she was worried that maybe I had rushed through the moment. And I had to write her back. And I said, Claire, 
the only reason why you didn't get a close-up is because in my shot list, you're not supposed to be seen in a close-up saying it. That's, that's when it's in the wide. And so that kind of was an educational experience. It kind of made me realize how vulnerable actors are. Um, and also, it's a good idea to kind of explain your, I think, visual strategy sometimes to the actors. I mean, some actors don't care. Uh, but Claire, at that point, was a director herself, so I think she was a little worried, you know. And I and and so for an actor like her, it helped to explain what we were doing. She also was worried because there was another moment where she said, uh, "We only did one take." <laughs> <laughs> and by the way, this is a take with dialogue. And again, I don't remember what shot it was, but I wrote her back and I said, Claire, the reason why we only did one take is because you were perfect. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if you were to watch that scene right now, you would never in a million years guess which was the one moment where she only said that line one time, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. yeah, that's one of those things, I think, it gets talked about a lot with like Fincher, obviously, like doing a hundred takes on Yeah. Uh, Damn you, David yeah. Fincher and Kubrick have like ruined yes. filmmaking yeah. for <laughs> for young people who feel that they have to do it over and over again. Yeah. I yeah, so I guess going off that in addition to so both in filming and then like setting up your shot, like in the shot listing and actually following through with that on set, is there a point where you just have to trust that you this is right for this moment? Like I know this this shot is the best way to convey that that take is all I need uh, is there a, some kind of similar thought process that goes through your head or do you feel like it's very intuitive like you just kind of are going with your gut uh, yeah I mean I think it is intuitive and you have to learn to trust trust yourself you know trust your instincts and and of course I mean I don't I hope I don't sound arrogant but there of course I'm also beset by doubt a lot of the time you know, sometimes I wonder, God, is this the right way to do this? Um, yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I do listen to my collaborators. Yeah. You know, oftentimes uh, my cinematographers come up with ideas for things that are better than what I had in mind. And that's the most exciting thing of all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think it's one of those uh, where there, you guys have a place where there could be anybody to put the camera. Yeah. How, well, I think you just have, yeah, I mean, honestly, the most important thing about directing is knowing where to put the camera. Mm -hmm. Where do you put the camera? And then, you know, how do you, how do you block the actors? Mm -hmm. Those are really the most important things. Yeah. Do you feel like there's films you keep in mind that are your premier examples of? Uh, yeah, of course. I mean, you know, I'm an old Hollywood guy. So for me, you know, John Ford is the gold standard for blocking, yeah. you know, and, and, and composing, composing images. I mean, he's the best. Um, and I think in a lot of ways, you know, if there's, if you watch my films, it's kind of like maybe there's some sort of tragic poignancy in the fact that I could never make movies like that. <laughs> I was born too late. You know, I would have loved to have been a director in the studio system era. But, you know, when I made Relative, I was really thinking about John Ford. And also, you know, somebody like Ho Shao Shen, to me, is the best contemporary filmmaker when it comes to blocking. I just watched... 
not long ago. I mean, I love all of his films, but I just watched Millennium Mambo for the first time in over 20 years, and I couldn't believe how good it was. Because that was one I, one I didn't really respond to the first time I saw it, and the blocking is insane. You know, it's just like he's the greatest at it. There's a scene where the main character vicky is in her apartment and she the cops come in and she has to kind of show them around and um it's the best example of blocking i've ever seen in a 21st century film um he has the characters moving freely around the set and he follows them and it's in long take and it looks completely spontaneous you know and that's what every filmmaker should try they should you know it should look like it should look like the movement of the characters and their behavior is not rehearsed but of course it is you know that's what you're trying to give the illusion of yeah and yeah it's i think it's so just blocking is another kind of cliche that it is just like well just get rid of your camera vision and that's yeah Yeah, he, he does this thing, Ho, Ho Shashin does this thing where a character is in a bedroom and the, the camera's in the living room. So it's outside of the room that they're in and then the character walks to a different part of the bedroom so they're out of sight. And But yet he still pans the camera from left to right in the direction that they move. And then you're only looking at the wall because you know they're behind there. And that's such a bizarre camera move, but it's also beautiful, you know? Um, yeah, that's the kind of stuff I love. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, in total, you said it was like five, five full days, like a week of shooting on Rendezvous uh, in total? Um, five full days of shooting, and then, yeah, kind of three half days. Yeah. And so was this, did you feel like you... All three of the half days, uh, no, two of them were MOS. Okay. And it was only this the day with I-Day where we also recorded sound. And did you feel more positive about this experience immediately coming out of it, more, the, more so than the like, Mercury experience? Absolutely. You know, the funny thing is it was over so fast that there was no time to even <laughs> feel any way about it. It was like, you know, we shot for two days. We shot for another two days. We had a day off, and I think that was the day where we did that, the half day with the the uh, babysitter, the the inappropriate babysitter, and then we shot the last day. So I think we shot six six days in a row. Yeah. And then, uh, how long uh, the post production? Like how long between finishing? Oh man, so fast. So this was the first film I ever made that was cut by Eric Marsh. And uh, and he's since cut my next feature as well as the short that I just made. And uh, he's also going to cut my next feature. So um, he is lightning fast. And uh, he every, what he does is he comes to the set every day and he picks up the footage. Um, you know, we put it onto a hard drive and he, he comes to set, picks it up, takes the hard drive home. So he's cutting. When we shot the first night of Rendezvous, you know, he showed up in the morning when we were 
uh, you know, packing up the gear and he picked up the footage on a hard drive and he took it home and started cutting. And then like on set the second night, you know, he kind of sent me a link <laughs> to a scene that he had cut on Vimeo and it had music in it that was the music we were going to use. And I remember showing it to people and then it was cool because the crew got excited when they saw it because they were like, oh, wow, this looks good. This, you know, sounds good. And it also looked different than they realized it would. It, like the feeling of it was different because the thing about that first scene in Rendezvous is I always wanted it to feel like a dream, you know, and uh, when you're on set, um, it feels more realistic. Yeah. But when they heard it with the music and they saw the lighting mm -hmm. and they saw how he cut it, they were like, oh, wow, it feels dreamy. Yeah. Well, I guess with that scene, too, the uh, TV with the static. Yeah. Like that was part of the dream. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Awesome. And so was the film, you had a rough cut then at that pace, like pretty shortly after? Um, yeah, we had a rough cut. I mean, probably... I don't know, less than two weeks after we shot it. And then um, and then after that, he and I would kind of work together to refine mm -hmm. to refine it. And we showed it to a bunch of other people and got their feedback and, you know, refined it even more. Yeah. And what do you look for when you show people for feedback? Like, what are you... You want to make sure it works, mm -hmm. you know. I mean, I, I don't... I never give a questionnaire or anything, but um, usually I just ask for general feedback. I always tell people to be brutally honest. Mm -hmm. I say don't don't hold back, um, and don't. I also say because you know, I remember Cool Apocalypse. We shot a scene that I cut, and I think I talked about that the last time I was here. And you know, I asked my wife early on in the process, "What do you think about this scene?" She's like, "It's fine." And I said, "You think I should cut it?" She said, "No." And then after I cut it, I said, "By the way, I cut that scene." And she was like, "Oh yeah." She goes, "I'm really glad." And I go, "What? You told me it was fine." And she goes, "Well, that's because I didn't think you were able to. I thought you needed it." <laughs> so you know, you have to be careful um, when you solicit feedback from people that you're close to because they're afraid of hurting your feelings. Yeah. So you really do need to be like, "Look, everything is expendable." Let me know if something is not working. Again, Ho Shao Shen said when he made The Assassin, like, if he felt like something wasn't working, whether it was acting or lighting, like if anything struck him as inauthentic in any way, he would cut it. And regardless of what it did to the narrative clarity. So when you watch that movie, there are certain things that don't make sense, but it doesn't matter because every shot is beautiful. <laughs> Everything feels real. <laughs> and in a way, that's the most important thing. Right. And do you, so you have, have, do you feel like you found a group that you, uh, like certain people you always come back to or do you kind of change it up? Well, it changes on its own because the nature of this art form is that people are constantly moving and people are constantly working on different things and not everyone's available. One of the weird things about my career is that I've never worked with the same cinematographer twice. I know that's unusual because it seems like every director finds their DP and they work together forever. But for whatever reason, you know, my last DP, Olivia, moved to LA. And, you know, so I'm working with somebody different now. I'll... Although, you know, hopefully I, I can someday have enough money to kind of you know, fly her back. Mm -hmm. But not every project is conducive to that. Yeah. Um, 
And, you know, I, I've liked the last four DPs that I've worked with. I liked them all very much. Um, and they, they're all different. They all bring something different to the table. So I, I think I also like, I do like that variety, you know, of kind of collaborating with different people. Getting new perspectives, absolutely. I mean, you know, you learn from your crew, just like you learn from your actors. Um, the editor, you know, I would be very happy if I died very old and I made many films right up until 106, just like Manuel de Oliveira. But, I, and if that is the case, I hope that Eric Marsh cuts all of my films and that he lives to be, you know, 100 as well. Yeah, that'd be scary. Yeah. So yeah, the, it sounds like you learned some festival lessons with Mercury, uh, or had some. I mean, Mercury, we aimed high, you know, because again, that's part of the pressure thing, yeah. you know. In the artistic arena, your toughest opponent is yourself, you know, and with with uh, Rendezvous, you know, we submitted to. We, we we world premiered at the Adirondack Film Festival in upstate New York, and it just so happened that that was like the first festival that accepted us. And by the way, that was October of 2018, and we shot in May. So, you know, it was probably like we probably had a final cut in July, and then color and sound mixing, you know, and then submitting I mean, did, I don't even think we submitted it as a work in progress. We probably finished the whole thing. And, you know, um, Adirondack seemed like a good fit. I heard, I had heard good things about it. You know, we went up to upstate New York and had a blast. And, you know, we just played a bunch of festivals. Um, I think it was like a dozen, you know. And were you looking at a more specific type of festival for this film? Yeah, of course, because um, it's a comedy. You know, it's like that's my most overtly comedic film. So we were looking more for festivals that would have like a comedy sidebar. You know, we played the George Lindsay uh, Festival in um, Florence, Alabama, and they actually gave out an award for best uh, comedy feature. Or no, I think it's best comedy film, and it can go to either a feature or a short um, and so that was really gratifying. And, you know, I, I think that we submitted to a bunch of smaller festivals, yeah. um, which was great. We played, that was, we played movies in the parks in Chicago, Chicago On Screen uh, Film Showcase, mm -hmm. which is a really great local festival that a lot of people don't know about. I would say, Jake, that the best Chicago film festival for spotlighting Chicago filmmakers is the Chicago on-screen local film showcase. Uh, they show nothing but Chicago films. They show them in the parks. The programming is excellent. You know, they'll show films by people like Chris Swanberg and, you know, um, uh, you know, They'll show Cartemquin films, you know, films by Alex Thompson, just great stuff. And, uh, and you know, they're better than and, – and also they give you a screening fee. Mm, yeah. And, you know, they're better than a lot of the 
you know, more, uh, you know, well-known local festivals that yeah. don't care about doing such a thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, you, you Not going to mention any names. Yeah. <laughs> Been more publicized. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, so you felt like you, was this something along the crowdfunding, the festivals, you felt like you had a better handle on? Uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. The, uh, well, you know, the cool thing about crowdfunding is it helps you to publicize your movie before you make it because you kind of build up a network of people who are aware of the fact that you're doing it. So that was, that was an interesting lesson to learn. In fact, that's one of the reasons why crowdfunding is good. Um, and yeah, so learning the festival circuit. Yeah. It was my third feature on the festival circuit. And I felt like I had a better sense of, where it would play mm-hmm. and then getting into the distribution this was uh, cow lamp films right? yeah. yeah um you know cow lamp is a small local distributor and uh but they've put out a lot of quality films you know by quality filmmakers and uh i have some friends jack newell who's in mercury and retrograde i think two of his features are available through cow lamp and the cool thing about CalAmp is, you know, they'll get your film onto platforms like Tubi and Vudu. You know, anybody can get their, anybody can, you know, put their own movie on uh, Amazon Prime. And so, you know, I went down there to their office on Michigan Avenue and talked to them. And, you know, I had a lot of questions. And one of the things I said was like, well, I can put this online myself. Like, what? can you do that I really cannot do? And, you know, they, they, they say, well, we, you know, we have a whole roster of films. So there's an algorithm. If somebody watches one of these other films, you know, yours will pop up. Um, and that's a good point. You know, that's a really good point. So um, I was really happy with what they did with it. They also advertised it. You know, they used their social media accounts to advertise my film. And they would make these cute little, like, <laughs> kind of memes and short videos and write witty things about Rendezvous. And, uh, you know, base that around a certain holidays. You know, this Valentine's Day stream Rendezvous in Chicago. So it's cool to have somebody else doing that where it's not just you all the time on social media tr- trying to beg people to see your film because at a certain point people tune out you know i know for a fact there are people who are friends of mine who have muted me <laughs> because they're like uh, i don't need to hear this guy talk about you know his screenings anymore um and i'm sympathetic to that yeah. but but i have to do it you know because if you're an artist you gotta you have to promote your work so anyway um so it was cool to have Cow Lamp do that. And um, Rendezvous was the right film because my investor had already been paid back. So I thought, okay, whatever checks I get from them for streaming uh, will just be, it'll just be icing on the cake. And, you know, I will say this, they've been very good about sending me checks on a regular basis. It went, the film became available to stream late 2019 and yeah every you know every three months i get a check in the mail usually for you know dozens of dollars yeah <laughs> so yeah and but, but i don't care you know yeah. i wasn't trying to make money mm-hmm. off that film yeah yeah i mean there's a large difference between that and putting something out every year 
trying to make a billion dollars that exactly yeah. uh, i guess another plus of crowdfunding is that that involvement does kind of lend yeah they're donations they're yeah. not investments yeah. mm-hmm. that's the difference yeah yeah it's really interesting yeah well yeah thank you so much uh really appreciate all that you said thank you